0: Uh, that with the series is that we've been talking about what the good life is. The good life is a life that we all long for, whether we can put words to it or not, but we may all define it in all sorts of different ways. In fact, when we look out into the world, everyone maybe has a different understanding of what the good life really, really is. That for some people, uh, a, life is, a good life is a life that's filled with good stuff. For some people, a good life, the good life is a life filled with good wealth. Or maybe it's a good retirement that maybe one day you can have, that one day you can actually experience the good life. It's a life filled with good fun or a good reputation or being a good person. Whatever it is, the good life is whatever brings you the most satisfaction is what the world tells us. But when Jesus came into the world, he came offering a life that through the course of this series that we're saying is is gooder than all the other good lives that the world can offer us. And and unlike the world, Jesus can actually give us the good life that he offers us. In fact, in John 10.10, he says his very purpose for coming into this world is, I have come that they may have life. Who is they? It's all of us. It's the entire world. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That I have come that this world may experience The good life that I have to offer them. And this isn't a life that that you have to wait until you die to get to experience. But it's a life that you can actually experience right now. And so uh, news of this promise spread. And as Jesus was proclaiming this message, people began coming up to Jesus asking him about this good life. And over the course of this series, we were looking at some of the encounters Jesus had with people who heard his message about this life to the full this abundant life and had questions or challenges about it. And it's stories like the one we're going to look at today. We're going to be in Luke 10 for most of the day, looking at an encounter Jesus had with the religious expert who comes up to Jesus. And Luke tells us on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus teacher. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now just a sneak peek back into first century Judaism, uh, society was kind of, at the center of society was the law, the Old Testament, the 613 commandments that you find in the Old Testament. And society was kind of built like a totem pole. And the people who were really living the good life were at the top of the totem pole, and this was the people who prided themselves in knowing and keeping all 613 of these commandments, that they lived the good life, and so because of that, they would receive the good life. And uh, this, and then Jesus comes along and he has this radical message that he's actually giving the good life to everybody. No matter where you find yourself on that totem pole, no matter what your ability is to keep all of these commandments, Jesus is offering the good life to everybody. And one of the guys who comes up uh, to Jesus is this expert in the law, a religious expert, kind of the lawyer of his day. And he asked this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, is this question familiar to anyone? It was the same question we looked at last week. <laughs> a few of you were wondering the same exact way. You're like, wait, didn't we hear this message before? Because last week there was a, there was we were in Luke 18, and it says a certain ruler asked him, "Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?" So is Luke just recounting the same story in two different places? No, these are two different people in two different passages of Luke's gospel who come up and ask him the same exact question but they're doing so with two different sets of assumptions. Now, the rich guy that we looked at last week in Luke 18, his assumption was that the good life is measured by the good stuff I have. This week in Luke 10, we're looking at this religious expert and his assumption is the good life is measured by the good way I live. And I think this is, if we were to take all of our understandings of the good life and kind of put them into two groups, I think these are the two groups that we would find. That for you, as you think about your understanding of the good life, the one that, that you hope for, the one that would bring you the most satisfaction, is it a life filled with good stuff? It doesn't have to be wealth and possessions. It could be good relationships. It could be a good good legacy. It could be good, good health even. Are there stuff that you think would make your life good, make it better? Or are you the kind of person, as you think about a good life, the life that you want to look back at the end of your life and with a sense of satisfaction, is it a life that's, that's measured by the good way you lived? That you actually were, were thinking about the good of others, that you wanted your life to have a great impact and to serve and, and do good for others, that that's the kind of life. Now, maybe you're kind of somewhere in between here, but I think mostly as we think about the good life, we think about one of these two things. And, and these are the two assumptions that these two guys over these two weeks come to Jesus with and ask their question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now here's the thing, Jesus doesn't challenge either of these guys' assumptions. He just, he just kind of accepts it and he goes on with the conversation. Now with the rich young ruler that we looked at last week, um, Jesus plays out the conversation and what we see Jesus doing is Jesus helps this guy to see that the good stuff that he has in his life was actually getting in the way of the better life, the good life what Jesus was offering him. And this week, with the religious expert, his assumption is the good way that I live will lead me to inherit the good life that God offers. And I want us to see what Jesus does with his assumption, with where we go in this conversation. And so, back to Luke 10, starting in verse 26, Jesus says to the religious expert, he says, "'What is written in the law?' he replied. "'How do you read it?' Jesus is saying, hey, you're the religious expert, you're the lawyer here, you know all of this. So 613 commandments, how do you read it? That means how do you live this out? How do you apply this to your life? And the religious expert says back to him, he says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? We hear Jesus teaching this uh, in in his own gospels. And Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. This is Jesus' way of saying, correct, nailed it. A plus. Just do that, and the good life is yours. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek a little bit here. Now, the lawyer hears this, and he responds, and Luke gives us a little bit of commentary here. The lawyer says, but he wanted, or Luke tells us, the lawyer wanted to justify himself. We need to hold on to that word. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This is the religious expert's kind of way of saying, I want to justify myself, which is I want to show that I'm righteous in the particular way that I live out, loving God and loving my neighbor. So he asks this question, who is my neighbor? And really what he's asking is, Jesus, there's a lot of neighbors out there. And so who do I have to love? But really, who's the exception? Who, who, who can I get by without needing to love? Like any good lawyer, he's asking the question, where's the loophole in this law, right? Um, one of the lawyers that um, I know best is my 10-year-old. His name is Sam. We learned early on that, if, that Sam, when he was about five, we learned that if there was a way around him doing what I was telling him to do, he could find it. And he he could talk his way out of it. And some of you know Sam. You lead him and you're like, yep, that's Sam. Got that. But um, he could talk. He could get around it. So one night he was about five. We were sitting at dinner. And uh, I could tell Sam was not all that excited about what was on his plate. So he says to me after, you know, several minutes without touching his food, he says, Dad, do I have to eat my dinner? I said, yeah, bud, you got to eat your dinner. He goes, okay. So he looks, kind of sits back in his chair and he looks at his plate and I see his eyes move and first of all, they fall on his chicken and then his eyes move over to the rice and then they move to the broccoli and I could, they just sat there for a second and then he said, dad, do I have to eat all my dinner? It was Sam saying, dad, which parts of my dinner do I have to eat? What he was really saying was, was, which parts do I not have to eat? And the, rich, the, the religious expert, the lawyer here, he's asking Jesus the same question. He's looking around at the plate of neighbors that he has, and he's saying, do I have to love all of my neighbors, or are there some that I can get by without needing to love? And we all ask the same question, too. We say, we say okay, God, I know I should love the people around me, but do I have to love all of them? Because we all have someone who's the broccoli on our plate don't we? It's the coworker, or the family member or the roommate or the boss. It might be your actual neighbor. It could be someone who shows up on your, uh, on your Facebook feed. It could be your ex. It could be the parent of your children. It could be anyone. There's someone that's hard for you to love. And you say, do I have to love that person? But it, could, it might not be an individual. It might be an entire group of people that for you, the neighbor that's hard for you to love is someone who votes differently than you, who has a different view of society than you, who comes from a different part of town than you, who makes different amounts of money or spends their money different from you. We all have someone that's hard for us to love and so we do what this lawyer did, we justify ourselves and we say, God, do I really have to love them? So we share this religious expert's dilemma. We want to love our neighbor as ourselves because we know it's right and good, but it's not easy. And Jesus wants to help us. Jesus wants, us, wants to help us know how to love the unlovable people in our lives, to love the people that's hard for us to love. And so he gives us a parable, and it's one of Jesus's most well-known parables. And because of that, we miss just how shocking and scandalous this parable was. When we hear this parable, it reads kind of like the three little pigs. But for the people that Jesus was teaching in first century, this would have been so much more shocking and scandalous. This would have actually turned their world upside down. And so this is the way Jesus offers this parable. And I want us to listen to what Jesus has to say to us. Jesus says to this guy in response to his question, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. And they stripped him of his clothes, and they beat him. And he went away, and they went away, leaving him for dead. This is the opening scene of Jesus' first parable, that a man is, is attacked that he's robbed, he's stripped naked, he's beaten, and he's left for dead. It's kind of like the opening scene of an episode of CSI, <laughs> right? And so uh, the picture, where, the, the road from Jericho, from Jerusalem to Jericho, this is actually a picture of that road right here. This is a really, really dangerous road. We, it's not a road like, like we often think of. The road that Jesus was, was talking about was a well-known 17-mile stretch of road called the Way of Blood. It was one of the most dangerous roads that there was because it was narrow with steep drop-offs and there were small caves that would make it easy for for robbers and attackers to hide in before they jumped out to attack uh, uh, travelers who were coming by. This is the setting of Jesus' story. But then he introduces us to three characters, which was a common technique in the day to show who gets it right and who gets it wrong. And pay attention as we get to see these characters what each person does. And so Jesus continues, he says a priest happened to be going down the road, the same road, and when he saw the man who had been attacked, he passed by on the other side. And then a Levite, kind of a different form of a a priest, another religious person, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But then a Samaritan Someone who was from the, the, the area of Samaria. As he traveled, he came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he felt compassion for him. So he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn and he took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will re- re- reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. So these first two guys who come along, the priest and the Levite, we always give them a hard time, right? But just for a second, we try to be gracious people around here, let's give them some grace, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. The priest, if he was coming from Jerusalem, then he was probably at the temple where he was going about some of his religious duties and where he had been ceremonial cleansed, which was something that priests needed to do from time to time. And so if he was walking down Jericho, he sees a guy who's, who's beaten, half-dead, laying on the side of the road. Um, he's thinking to himself, well, I know the Old Testament is very clear that I should show mercy to those who are in need. But it's also very clear that to touch a dead person would be impure. And so then he would have to go all the way back to Jerusalem along this dangerous road. He would have to go back to the temple. He would have to ceremonial cleanse himself again. And this is a lot of work on behalf of someone who's probably already dead. And if not, they're probably going to die anyway. So he keeps on going on his way. Okay. And then we have the Levite. He's he's kind of like a priest, but he doesn't have all the same restrictions and regulations that the priest does. But he's probably, again, benefit of the doubt, he's probably on his way to doing some really important work for some people. He's serving them in some way, maybe running to care for some people. And he sees a half dead guy laying on the side of the road, but he didn't want to keep the people that he was going to serve waiting. So he moves along too, right? And then we know that the third character is coming along. Now, For those who are listening, everyone knows that the next person in the story would be the hero. This would be the one who gets it right. But if the hero wasn't the priest and the Levite, the two people who were at the top of the totem pole of society, the most religious and righteous people that there were, if they didn't get it right, then who would? There's really no one left. And so Jesus goes for the least likely type of person there was, a Samaritan. Now for the Jews, listening to this story, even saying the word Samaritan would cause their blood to boil. That there was nothing good about people from Samaria. They didn't even regard them as actual human beings. And nobody was looked more down upon than the Samaritans. And this is where Jesus has his audience on the edge of their seats. The person that they hate the most is the person who gets it right. And by this, Jesus is saying, who is your neighbor? Your neighbor is anyone that crosses your path. Anyone. But if that's the case, Jesus knows that we all have a little bit of lawyer in us. And so if I'm called to love everyone, if there's no loophole, well, then our next question is going to be, what's the minimum I have to do to actually love this person? And Jesus Shows us. Jesus uses this parable to show us what love, what good love really looks like. And from it, we learn some things. We learn that love, good love, sees with compassion, not convenience. Love sees with compassion, not with convenience. That each of the three characters, they see the man, Luke tells us. But the first two kept on going. Why? because they saw something in their way. They saw an inconvenience. Do you ever feel that? You ever feel that coworker who wants to chat just a little too long? You ask how their trip was and they think you were really interested, like in the whole story. Or maybe they need help on a project that they're working on but it's keeping you from the work that you need to do. Or maybe it's the person with car trouble when you're running late, but you feel guilty like you should go ahead and help them. Maybe, maybe it's much closer to home. Maybe it's the child that wants one more book at bedtime when all you want to do is climb under your covers, turn on some Netflix, and check out from your day. Parenting hours are over. In fact, uh, speaking of, this rings true for my life. Uh, Recently, I saw a friend post this meme on, on Facebook. At bedtime, my children turn into dehydrated philosophers who need a hug. like you had all day, but now is the time when you want to ponder all the mysteries of God in the universe, right? And so whether it's people that we're inclined to love, like our own family, our kids, or people that we're not inclined to love, we tend to look at one another in terms of what's convenience or not. The Samaritan didn't see an inconvenience. Jesus says he had compassion on the man. Now, compassion isn't just sympathy. Jesus would have had a word for compassion. In the Hebrew, this would have been like chesed, this love that we don't have a great English translation for, but but it's it's not just sympathy because a chesed love moves us. That it's this deep, visceral, active mercy that reaches out, that moves someone to action on behalf of someone else. And Jesus was always looking at people. When we look through the gospels, Jesus was always looking at people with this kind of compassion. That in, in Matthew... Matthew 9, it says, when the Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. Mark 10, which is a different account of the passage we looked at last week. Mark tells us, he includes this detail, Jesus looked at the rich young ruler and he loved him. Luke 15, another one of Jesus' most well-known parables, the parable of the prodigal son. Luke tells us, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him. And had compassion on him. The gospel writers want us to know that Jesus didn't just see people. He saw them and he loved them. And he was moved to active mercy and love on their behalf. You know what we don't see in Jesus? We don't see hurry. Jesus was busy. He was busy a lot. But we never see him hurried in his time with people one author, Pastor John Orberg, he writes about this. He says, love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible. Love always takes time. And that's the one thing hurried people don't have. What's hurry like in your life? I think we all know the answer because we all share the struggle. Hurry is what our World lives in. It's what our world almost celebrates, our busyness. But if we are the most busy people that have ever lived, it also means we are the least loving people who have ever lived on the face of this planet. So so what are the things that are causing hurry in your life? Because if our love has a timer, it may not actually be love, at least not good love. Jesus wants us to know that that love sees not with convenience, but with compassion. He also wants us to know that love moves toward, not around. See, the, the, the priest and the Levite, when they come across this guy laying on the side of the road, uh, remember, this is not like a road like we think of a road. This is not like, you know, Interstate 35, right? Or even straying Line right out here. This is more like the Indian Creek Trail or just the, the sidewalk in your neighborhood. To to move around someone, you would actually have to step over someone. So when these guys see the guy on the side of the road and keep on going, they would have had to actually step over the man. Now how is it that two people who claim to know the heart of God stepped over the very heart of God? And when we walk around people in need of mercy, we walk around the heart of God too. The hard thing about this passage is when we think about the times in our life where we move away from the heart of God. When we step over the people that God puts in our path who are in need of some form of mercy. I'll, I'll, I'll go first. I had two of these walk around moments uh, while I was thinking about this message, ironic. Uh, one was I was just leaving the church, I was headed to lunch for someone, I was, I was running late and someone was showing up at the church doors and they were unloading a lot of stuff from their trunk and I could tell that they had a lot to carry in. But rather than offer to help this person, I just walked right past him because I didn't want to keep the person I was meeting for lunch any later than I already had. I walked right around him. someone who just had, needed some help. Then as I was driving around town, I pulled up to an intersection and I knew that at this particular intersection, there would usually be someone standing on the side of the road with a cardboard sign. And I saw indeed someone was doing that. You know what I did? I changed lanes. Anyone ever done that? I changed lanes so that I wouldn't have to be so obvious that I didn't notice them. And in that moment, what I was doing was I was making assumptions about the person. I I assumed that they didn't really need my help anyway. I assumed that whatever I had to give wasn't really going to help them in the way that they most needed help either. I also assumed that it was their own decisions that put them in that place. And so I moved away. I moved away from the heart of God. I moved away from the very heart of God that he had put in my path. What is it for you? What is it that causes you to step over or move away from the heart of God when it shows up in your path? If there's something that I think gets all of us, it's risk. Because love requires risk. In fact, Jesus wants us to know that love gives no matter the risk. Love seems easy until you do it. It costs you something. Listen, listen to all the Samaritan did. He went to the guy on the side of the road. He bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine on them. He put the man on his own donkey, meaning that the Samaritan actually walked the rest of the way himself. He brought him to an inn. He cared for him throughout the night. And in the morning, he told the innkeeper, look after him. Here's my credit card. Give him whatever he needs. You know what he didn't, the Samaritan didn't give this guy He didn't tell him, let me know if you need anything. He didn't give him advice. He didn't give him judgment. He didn't tell him you should have known better than to travel this road alone. He didn't say, I'll pray for you and then keep on. These are the things that we're tempted to do when we want to love without any risk. These are the things that we want to do when we want to keep our pace and not be held back but this kind of love is love from a distance. This is the kind of love that doesn't risk anything. Think of everything that the Samaritan risked. He risked his schedule. This would have dominoed his entire week. He risked his stuff. Where did he get the oil and wine from? Where did he get the bandages from? It meant he was tearing his own clothes in order to care for this guy. He risked his safety that to stop on this dangerous road and help the man could have led to himself being robbed and attacked, making himself vulnerable to those things. He even risked his reputation. Others back in Samaria would have heard how, how he helped their enemy. He said, what are you doing? But that's what love does. It's what good love does. As you think about the people that maybe God has put in your path, are there things that are hard for you to risk to love them? Are there things that it's hard for you to to let go of in order to love them? Are you willing to love until it reaches a certain point when it just costs too much? And so after telling the lawyer the story, Jesus asked him kind of the question of the day. Jesus says to the man, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the religious expert says, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus tells him, go and do likewise. Now, pay attention to this. We see what the guy said. What we don't know is what he felt. And you can only wonder, and I wonder, what was this guy feeling as he responded to Jesus' question here? Was he feeling angry? I mean, notice the guy couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He said the one who had mercy on him, he wouldn't even let himself say that the, the person I hate the most is the one who got it right. Or maybe he was feeling embarrassment, shame, or guilt, as he thought about all the times in his own life that he had walked around people in need of mercy and love. Or maybe what he was feeling in this moment was a sense of, you know what, I'm gonna do better. I'm gonna try harder. I'm gonna prove to you, Jesus, and everyone else who's watching me that I can, that I can do this, that I can live this out, because that's what the point of this parable is, isn't it? That, that I can love in such a way that I can inherit the good eternal life that God wants us to have, right? That's the point? Well, if that's where our love comes from, we're in trouble. See, the brilliant thing about Jesus' parables is that they invite us into the story. So when we hear this one, we always think, which character points to me? And we think of all the times that we've been like the priest and the Levite, and and we've we've moved on, or we've failed to see the person in need, or we were unwilling to love them, and so we fill ourselves with shame and guilt, thinking, I'm going to do better. I'm going to love better. But if that's where our love comes from, friends, we are not going to make it to the parking lot before we fail. I guarantee you, it will be while you're picking your kids up after the service that you will fail to love the people around you because we're doing it from a place of guilt and shame. The question isn't which character points to me. The question in this parable is which character points to Jesus. And there is one person in this story who sees a person in need who stops, who is moved not by guilt or shame or because the rule said so. There's one person in this story who is moved by compassion enough to go to the person in need, to give up himself in order to rescue this guy from the evil of the world. Do you see it? Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan. And because of that, the point of this parable is not what must I do to inherit eternal life? The point of this parable is what has already been done for you and me so that we can have eternal life, so that we can have the good life that Jesus came to give us, so that we can have the life that we don't even need to wait to die to experience because eternity starts now. What has been done for you and me? See, love begins when we see how much we have been loved. This is what Jesus wants us to know. That love isn't measured by the good stuff we have in our life. Love isn't measured by the good ways in which we live. Love is measured by the way in which we have been loved. And Jesus looks at this self-righteous, arrogant, religious expert who is trying to justify himself before many. Who is trying to establish why he deserved to be at the top of the totem pole of the good life. And Jesus looks at this guy with the same eyes of compassion that Jesus looked at the rich guy last week with. He's looking at these guys with the same eyes of compassion that he looks at you and me with. Because he wants us to know, you and I, we can be loved like that. In fact, we already are. We already are loved like that. See, the character that points to you and me is the one guy in this story that we never notice and we never talk about. It's the half-dead guy laying on the side of the road who spends the entirety of this passage completely unconscious and wakes up the next morning to find out that he has been saved by a love that he didn't do a single thing to deserve. That's the good life. It's not a life that we get by what we have or because of what we do. It's a life that has been given to us and there is no greater life than a life lived in the love of Jesus. And we will never, ever be able to love one another the way Jesus loves us if we don't first realize and see how loved by Jesus we are. That's how we go and do likewise. That's how a movement of love that our world is aching to see begins to happen in us. What I love about the story of Craig McIlvain when, when, A couple of weeks ago, when he knew that his time was coming to an end and he, he put a, a message up on Facebook letting all of his friends and followers know that his time was drawing to a close here on this earth, hundreds upon hundreds of people began pouring forth comments, sharing stories, paying tribute, honoring Mac. And if there was one thread through it all, what people were saying to him, what they wanted him to hear is, Mac, you helped me see how loved by God I am. And the reason Mac did that is because Mac himself knew how loved by God he was. And that was the vision that birthed this church. That God is saying to us, this is why you're here, Heartland. You are here to show the world how loved they are. You are here to show the world you don't have to do anything or have anything to experience the good life Jesus came to give. These are the neighbors that I have put in your path. I have put an entire city, Kansas City, in your path so that they would see, so that they would know how loved they are by me. And you're not doing it for the name of Heartland. You're doing it for me because this is the way that I have loved you. But the only way that we can go and do likewise is to first of all see how loved we are by Jesus.